This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. Welcome to a special edition of the Real Estate Hour, Business Radio's mid-year real estate outlook. I'm your host, Sam Chandon, the Larry and Clara Silverstein Chair in Real Estate Development and Investment at NYU's Schack Institute of Real Estate. I'm also a proud alumnus of the University of Pennsylvania and the Wharton School, where I hold an adjunct faculty appointment in the Real Estate Department. First on today's program, underpinning commercial real estate investment, both domestically in the United States and abroad, sits an immense global network of capital flows. Despite a pullback in early 2019, according to global real estate services firm JLL, real estate markets around the world remain as dependent on cross-border investment as at any point since before the financial crisis. Here in the U.S., the demand for capital to support real estate investment and urban infrastructure remains exceptionally strong, drawing billions of dollars from Canada, Europe, Asia, and the Middle East. At the same time, the United States remains one of the dominant players in cross-border capital for acquisitions in other parts of the world. Joining me today to talk about cross-border real estate investment and how the U.S. sits in the eyes of the global investment community is Maggie Coleman. Maggie is Managing Director at JLL and Senior Leader on their International Capital Team for the Americas. Maggie, thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So first, big picture. Uh, Over the course of this last cycle, how would you characterize the role of global capital flows and the way in which they've supported U.S. markets? You know, we've seen over uh, this past cycle the volume of – capital being allocated to real estate globally continue to tick up. We've also seen a number of markets, particularly throughout Asia, really start to open up to outbound capital um, and look to the U.S. as a first stop for, um, for investing outside of the region. And, you know, what that's done is it's, it's driven uh, the amount of liquidity available for real estate and has certainly uh, brought in a lot of new market entrants from uh, the regions that we hadn't seen um, buy in the U.S. previously. Now, when you mentioned that sort of you know, your real estate sort of has gotten a larger allocation over the course of this cycle, you know, not only on the residential side but the commercial side, you know, we weren't the strongest players in the downturn. Um, why is it that you know you've seen this change or this shift or, or reweighting of global capital flows in a way that's favored real estate? I think it's primarily being driven by diversification. You have, you know, notably the pension funds as well as some of the large uh, mega funds that have continued to raise capital. And, you know, as they've raised additional capital, um, the need to diversify has really pushed real estate in terms of um, the percentage of allocation uh, up every year. This past year, it's... um, believe real estate's uh, north of 10.2%, which is the highest we've seen it in terms of percentage of allocation. And um, we would expect next year for it to continue to increase. We have um, a number of um, pension funds that we're tracking, for example, in uh, Asia that um, have not yet even allocated a capital to direct real estate investments. They've started off with an indirect uh, program. And so, Again, as we see more capital being allocated, as we see pension funds and funds move from indirect to direct strategies, we expect all of this to have a a very strong impact on uh, the commercial real estate sector, both in the U.S. and abroad. Yeah. Now, you've mentioned pension funds, and certainly I can give an example like the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board, a very active player in the United States. Mm-hmm. Are we really talking about money that's being driven by or, or, or coming from global uh, you know, pension funds in other parts of the world? You know, I know there are programs like EB-5 that give opportunities to relatively small individual investors to deploy capital uh, in real estate in the United States. How much of this is a large institution story like a pension fund or a sovereign wealth fund? versus your relatively smaller entities? That's a great question. You know, it is a, when you look at the volume of inbound capital from 
quote-unquote offshore, which includes Canada. The bulk of capital coming into the U.S. is, in fact, Canadian, and it is, in fact, being um, driven by the pension funds out of Canada. So, see, so CPP, Ivanhoe, um, OMERS, which has um, the entity Oxford, as you know. And that's, they have been some of the largest investors in the U.S. from foreign capital. But we're also talking about pension funds that, again, have not yet outlined or articulated a direct investment strategies that we expect to do so. When you look at, for example, um, GPIF in Japan, you know, that's an $8 trillion or so pension fund. And um, they've just now um, begun or commenced uh, a focus on real estate. They've hired uh, one or two asset managers to help with their strategy. And they are going to start with an indirect we're closely monitoring how that indirect strategy plays out because we do think, you know, they'll eventually move to a direct investment strategy similar to the Canadian uh, model. So it's, you know, it is the tried and true pension funds that have been here operating for some time, but it, there is new capital that we're actually tracking um, and what we call pent up demand that we expect to, um, you know, uh, be uh, integrated into the, the real estate capital markets in the near term. When I'm looking at your list of the top 10 cross-border purchasers, do they, are the United States is at the top of the list, presumably buying assets in other parts of the world. You've got Singapore, Hong Kong, Germany, Canada, the UK, Japan. How much does this list change from one cycle to the next? Uh, you know, China, mainland China is not on the list. Are, are there ups and downs here that are meaningful? Or is this, you know, the, to your point about new sources of capital emerging, other parts of the world making allocations to real estate, you know, how does this list change over time? Well, certainly the U.S. is um, typically uh, the the dominant factor when it comes to cross-border capital. And what drives that is really the global mega funds that we, you know, talk about, um, which is, you know, the Blackstones, the LaSalle's, the um, Investcos of the world, so firms that are located in the U.S. but certainly have globally operating platforms. So you know that's one of the just one of the reasons why you see the U.S. as um, in that top tier um, in a in a kind of profound profound way. Um, the Singaporean um, outflows is really has been kind of the headline, call it of the last eighteen to twenty four months. That is a area of very you know high concentration of capital that in the last two years or so has really just opened up to the rest of the world. And we saw um, that capital flow from Singapore in a very real way into the U.S. with um, acquisitions by groups like Maple Tree and Capital Land for large portfolios, uh, multifamily, uh, industrial, as well as um, office. And so, so that capital has been a new emergent in terms of the global uh, cross-border story. We're tracking of the, you know, Singaporean groups, call it the top 10 that we spend a lot of time with. It's something like $900 billion in AUM. So, you know, meaningful capital that they're going to be deploying outside of the U.S. And then we certainly see um, factors that will take, you know, capital out of the cross-border um, out of the cross-border flows. So, you know, for example, uh, recently we've seen a muted um, kind of uh, flow from China uh, due to their focus to um, have their capital kind of remain within China and as part of the one road, one belt um, strategy. So it's, um, you know, we certainly see investors from uh, each of the regions moving in and out of that top 10 list, but it's primarily consistent. You know, there is, you know, the German capital, uh, German closed-end funds have been um, investors outside of their markets for, for quite some time. Um, and, you know, we certainly see um, other European um, countries that have been uh, very active, um, you know, float in and out of that top 10 list.
If you're just joining us, I'm Sam Chandon, and you're listening to a special edition of the Real Estate Hour here on Sirius XM 132. It's our mid-year Real Estate Outlook on Business Radio. Uh, my guest uh, for this half of the program is Maggie Coleman, Managing Director at JLL and Senior Leader of their International Capital Team for the Americas. We're talking about global cross-border capital flows into real estate markets. You, know, you mentioned um, you know, Chinese investors and you know, capital flows from China having uh, abated somewhat over the last last couple of years, we had a really active spate of hotel uh, acquisitions here in New York City. Um, d- d- the large institutions coming from abroad, are there preferred property types? Do we see them overweighting to hotels, big office buildings? Uh, are, are they shy of retail in the way that you know, many U.S. investors are? What, what, does, what does that look like? It's an interesting question because you see a broadening of appetite in the U.S by foreign investors across property types. And I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, where we are in an elongated cycle. Uh, So whereas many investors early in the cycle, or even last cycle, were primarily focused on, you know, single asset office or hotel acquisitions from um, international investors, we're seeing now capital from both Europe and Asia focus on, you know, more defensive strategies in the U.S., so multifamily and industrial. We've been spending a lot of time with investors uh, who are looking to access the U.S. multifamily and industrial market uh, with scale. And how do they go about implementing strategies to do that in, um, you know, um, a property type that's been somewhat fragmented and and largely, um, you know, ownership is still quite um, have a heavy concentration of private owners in those in those markets in those sectors. So multifamily and industrial certainly um, is where we're seeing expansion. Uh, we're also seeing a growing appetite for the alternatives, and what's driving that has been uh, the quest for yield. So identifying opportunities in data center, student housing, and medical office has been uh, ticking up on the radar of many of our offshore investors who we work with. And then the other trend I would say that is really interesting about this cycle is we're seeing a lot of really large-scale portfolios and entity-level transactions. So, um, you know, we mentioned the Canadians earlier. The Canadians have been executing large portfolios um, for some time. But, you know, the groups that we've seen um, as buyers of scale include Maple Tree now, um, out of Singapore, Ascendus um, out of Singapore, Capital Land out of Singapore. And so um, as we've seen them, um, those groups perform and execute those large-scale deals, we're starting to hear more of an interest in finding those opportunities from other buyers throughout Asia. Yeah. Um, and then obviously last year, what drove a lot of the volume was the entity-level transaction. So you had um, the uh, Brookfield acquisition of GGP. You had the Unibal Rodamco acquisition of Westfield. And that really drove a lot of volume and, again, um, pushed kind of cross-border capital um, in very meaningful ways into the U.S. market. Yeah, and just clarify um, for, invest- sure. uh, for, for our listeners, what do you mean by the entity-level transaction? So those were um, not um, real estate asset acquisitions. Those were company purchases. So, you know, Brookfield bought GGP as a company versus, you know, going in and buying individual, you know, portfolios or real estate. Right now, uh, entire entity. Another interesting aspect of this, I think early in the cycle, we saw a lot of capital, whether domestic or international, really focus on just a handful of cities. You know, now we're going back 10 years. Uh, Has there been, uh, in the same way that we've seen for domestic capital, a uh, dispersion? of uh, investment where, you know, sec- what we might sort of think of as secondary or tertiary markets or emerging, you know, smaller markets in the southeast of the United States, you know, are they getting their share of foreign capital as well? These would obviously be, you know, sm- relatively smaller transactions, but, we, you know, we've got listeners uh, in markets all around the country. Uh, are, are they going to see their share? They are. And we're, every trip that I take to um, in particular to Tokyo and to Singapore and to Seoul, we're educating investors on secondary markets. And a lot of that's being driven by, again, where can you identify markets that have um, very strong supply-demand dynamics, very compelling stories around you know, a millennial population, economic diversification, growing tech sectors, strong, um, you know, employment base, 
those are all secondary markets that those are all hallmarks of secondary markets that foreign capital is now paying attention to and bidding and buying in a very real way. Uh, we've brought a number of investors into deals in Chicago um, and Seattle most recently and have been working with a number of investors as they are broadening their uh, mandates locally with their local investor uh, committees to inc- include markets like Dallas and Denver and Austin, you know, Charlotte, um, Philadelphia has had a resurgence in, in interest. Houston's had a resurgence in interest, in interest. And so we're seeing it across probably 12 to 15 secondary markets um, that investors are really starting to, um, I would say, not pass because of the market and are really starting to try and understand the dynamics um, and the leasing dynamics in particular behind those markets. Um, in addition, I think, to um, just identifying the right secondary markets, you know, investors are looking for specific kinds of asset in those assets in those markets because they're not as familiar with them. So, for example, when, um, you know, Korean investors are looking at, you know, non-gateway markets, they're going to look for investment-grade tenancy with some term, most likely single-tenant um, assets to pursue. Um, and, you know, the other factor that I would say we've been noting as, you know, again, going back to that trend of portfolio acquisitions that many of these groups are pursuing, given the scale, they're just running into these secondary markets because a lot of these assets, you know, are not in gateway markets in in many of these portfolios that um, investors are underwriting and or pursuing. So, you know, it's been um, a really interesting, call it three to four years of seeing foreign capital really diversify outside of the gateways. So you mentioned Philadelphia. Obviously, that's a city of special importance for us. Mm-hmm. Um, I own, let's say, I own a relatively small or medium-sized apartment building or, or retail complex in Philadelphia. You know, I, I want to position my asset. I'm thinking about selling it. If if I want to be a contender or if I want to attract foreign capital as a potential buyer for my asset, um, do I do anything differently, or do I just focus on the fundamentals, make sure I've got strong leases in place, um, and the you know, and then you know when I'm bringing it to market, or or is there are there particular property characteristics that a foreign investor might be looking for that I should be mindful of? You know, that really is driven. The, the latter part of your question, if there are property characteristics, it's really driven by the regions and and where these investors are located, and a lot of that is being driven by the domestic investors there. So, for example, I gave you the kind of what is Korean capital looking for? You know, you can say the same about many of the Middle Eastern syndicators who are um, looking at secondary markets. They'll need, you know, a minimum yield. They'll need um, a minimum lease term and specific, you know, metrics around um, the property that would deem it, you know, of interest. So, you know, it's the property characteristics are really, um, I think, um, driven by where the investors are located. And that's, you know, it's kind of a generalization, but it's, it's quite true in many instances. Um, but how you position your city or your location, you know, a lot of it is, again, focusing on the rent growth, the job growth, and really strong supply-demand dynamics. Um, that's really where we're seeing, you know, investors spend time to understand and, and really um, look at assets that have very positive stories from that perspective. We spend a lot of time in Chicago as well, and I think Chicago is a market that, you know, has had a languishing kind of um, reputation of having too much supply, and it couldn't be further from the truth when you really drill down and look at the metrics, and that there was very little supply delivered after the financial um, you know, financial crisis. And because of its economic diversity, it's got, you know, influx of um, employment and an influx of employment base moving in from the suburbs. It's really quite a compelling um, market right now that's demonstrating rent growth. So it's, it's really about positioning, I think, your market from that perspective. 
If you're just joining us, I'm Sam Chandon, and you're listening to a special edition of the Real Estate Hour here on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. It's our mid-year real estate outlook. My guest is Maggie Coleman, Managing Director at JLL and Senior Leader of their International Capital Markets Team for the Americas. We're talking about global cross-border capital flows. Uh, Maggie, you'd mentioned that um, you know some of the strategies that are coming back into vogue or, or that are uh, emerging right now are really defensive. Of ones and you know you mentioned multifamily industrial is that a reflection of where people see the United States or where they see us globally in terms of the longevity of this cycle or are there other drivers there? I would say it's, it's a little bit of both. You know I think investors are feeling that we are long in a cycle. I think I'm going to say don't quote me on this even though we're live. <laughs> <laughs> I think July marks the you know this for the U.S. being the longest you know cycle. That's right. Um, in history. So, you know, I think that, you know, there's not necessarily a sense that, you know, underwriting has gotten overly aggressive or lending standards have, you know, shifted dramatically. There's still a tremendous amount of liquidity, as we talked about early on, with the amount of capital being allocated, the you know, amount of dry powder that still has yet to be deployed. So there's still a tremendous amount of liquidity. But I do think investors are seeing you know, a move to those defensive strategies that have had, you know, relatively stable returns in the long term. You know, when you look at multifamily, I think it's, you know, had the most stable returns for investors across property types. Um, so I think that there's a, a focus from that perspective. I think there's also just a growing familiarity with the multifamily sector. It's not a you know, multifamily as an asset type doesn't exist in every market. So just by, I think, investors becoming more educated on, you know, what multifamily is in the U.S., the fact that there is a, you know, a limited supply, um, even with the amount of supply that's been added in, in the past year, I think it was something over 300,000, you know, units delivered last year and were still undersupplied. Um, the story of workforce housing is resonating and the uh, understanding that that sector of the market, you know, is, is very difficult given where construction costs are to, to build. And so, you know, all of these factors that support a very strong multifamily um, market in the U.S. in the long term are starting to resonate. I think um, you are also seeing multifamily emerge as an asset class, as an asset class in Europe, you know, and in, in, in the U.K., in the PRS uh, sector. And so I think multifamily in general is just, you know, as a people are becoming more educated and people are seeing a need for that asset class in the long term. Industrial, I think, is, you know, certainly become a lot more favored because of the entire e-commerce story. You know, when we're talking to investors about industrial, a lot of it is that urban infill, logistic distribution space. Um, a lot of it is single tenant. Um, so that's, you know, I think the industrial side of things, it's its just, I think, become a, you know, education around what the e-commerce sector is doing in terms of driving uh, that particular um, part of the market. Now, you, you mentioned stability a couple of times. Um, we're obviously in a complex geopolitical environment um, with you know, varying perceptions uh, with regard to you know, the United States and other parts of the world. Um, how, how are foreign investors internalizing that? Are, are, are you know, some, of what's, some of what we see going on in the political landscape, is it impacting how people are thinking about the investment opportunity in the United States? You know, it's really interesting. When we meet with investors, they still, you know, they're making their decisions, not really based on the geopolitical, although it's always a topic, you know, people want to talk about it. But they're, you know, the U.S. market is still viewed as, you know, a safe haven for capital. It's still viewed as the most liquid market in the world. Um, and so I, I think that's really what is driving decisions um, for, you know, allocating capital um, in, in, in various markets. You know, what has, for instance, impacted um, the ability of capital to get deployed in the U.S. is not really that geopolitical, but it's like hedging costs, right? So you had, you know, you had a dramatic increase in hedging costs by both the German um, by both Germans as well as Koreans. And so that was a real challenge in the last 18 to 24 months for, um, you know, investors out of those markets to be able to um, pursue core office transactions, for example. And so that drove, you know, for, from a, for the Koreans, for example, 
that capital for chasing equity shifted from the U.S. to Europe. And so we saw a very real movement in capital flow from Koreans from the U.S. equity markets into um, European, um, into the Western European and now Central European. Um, and that's because hedging costs for um, many of the Korean groups was something, you know, north of 250 basis points. Uh, some of the German funds were underwriting them almost 300 basis points, um, if not more. So that really was what was impacting a lot of the investment decisions um, as opposed to kind of the geopolitical situation. But it is, you know, it is certainly a topic. And, you know, it's it's funny. I was, you know, being here in London, we've been talking a lot about Brexit. And you do start to think, well, Uncertainty has now been around for a while, and it's kind of the new normal. And so you're still seeing, you know, robust demand and, and uh, again, a significant amount of liquidity in this period, in this long period of uncertainty, which is kind of the new normal. So um, I, I really think it's still based on the fundamentals in terms of what's driving decisions. Sure. So just, you know, this may be part of the answer to my last question for you. We have just a moment left. Uh, you mentioned that you're in London. Uh, London in the first quarter of 2019 was the largest recipient of cross-border investment in the world. Uh, given the degree of uncertainty, uh, you know, in uh, in the UK right now, you know, that, that catches me a little bit off guard. But is, is it safe to say that, uh, you know, other factors are, are, you know, are at play here? London clearly remains an extraordinarily attractive market for investors. It does. And it's, I think it's investors who are looking at it from a long-term perspective. So, you know, again, I think the, the, the uncertainty around Brexit um, certainly drives headlines. And, um, you know, I think initially created some, um, you know, abatement or some, some concerns in the market. But I think, yes, it's, it's London is, by far the, the, the largest recipient of, of cross-border capital. I think, you know, it's, I was having a conversation with a colleague and they were saying, you know, domestically you've seen an increase in private capital looking to transact in London because they think it's, they think it's an opportunity. You know, they're long-term holders. So, you know, they've seen an uptick in capital coming out of the private sector pursuing real estate. That's, you know, potentially supplementing some of the institutional capital that's maybe, you know, moving a bit slower because of the uncertainty. So, um, you know, it's not a surprise that London remains the largest recipient. Um, it's it's always it's been a uh, market that Asian capital has, you know, been heavily focused on. Capital out of Hong Kong um, has been heavily focused on um, London. So we expect it to continue to be, you know, the top or if not one of the top markets for um, offshore groups. Maggie, thank you so much for joining me on the program. It's been a very much my pleasure, Sam, and um, look forward to uh, continuing the discourse over the uh, upcoming months. That was Maggie Coleman, Managing Director at JLL and Senior Leader of their International Capital Markets Team for the Americas. We need to take a quick break, but stay with us. In just a few minutes, I'll be talking with PwC's Mitch Rochelle, co-chairman of the ULI PwC Emerging Trends in Real Estate Report, arguably the world's most widely read annual take on global real estate markets. You're listening to a special edition of the Real Estate Hour. I'm your host, Sam Chandon, and this is Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM, Channel 132. You're listening. You're listening to a special edition of the Real Estate Hour. Here again, Sam Shandon. Welcome back to this special edition of the Real Estate Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Sam Chandon, and this is our mid-year real estate outlook. My guest this half hour is Mitch Rochelle, partner at PwC and co-chair of the Urban Land Institute PwC Emerging Trends in Real Estate Report, arguably the world's most widely read annual take on the real estate industry outlook. Earlier this year, Mitch joined me on the show to discuss the forecast for 2019 and, among, amongst other things, investor concerns about the longevity of this cycle, both economic and real estate. Halfway into the year, he's back to tell us how things are unfolding. Mitch, thanks for joining me again on the Real Estate Hour. Always my pleasure, Sam. So here we are. It's mid-year 2019. How would you characterize overall conditions in commercial real estate investment? 
I still still feel that they're very robust, as do the folks we talked to. We're actually starting the process of compiling emerging trends in real estate 2020. So we're out there in the marketplace continuing those conversations. And investors remain as optimistic today as they were a year ago. What's interesting, if you go back year after year, there's always one or two things looming on the horizon that give cause for concern in the eyes of investors, uh, whether it be where we are in the economic expansion, whether it be a presidential election, um, whether it be geopolitical uh, risks that exist around the planet. And now is no different. Um, we're approaching another general election in the United States. We have trade concerns. And what's interesting is when you step back from all of that, investors like commercial real estate for the same reasons today that they did last year, that they did the year before, and so on. And as wealth becomes available for investment, whatever the source of that wealth may be, commercial real estate and the real estate asset class more broadly becomes a resting place for that wealth. So um, uh, mid-year, maybe it's a big nothing burger in terms of <laughs> the news cycle bite here, but um, I, I believe that they're as robust in their views of real estate today as they were um, six months ago when we last spoke. Yeah. You know, I hear investors uh, you know, will say from time to time that you know they're finding real estate pretty expensive. You know, office, multifamily, and the biggest markets in particular. Um, you know, some of them may be hesitating uh, given where they see pricing right now. Have you seen that impact deal activity at all? Um, you know, are there you know, prospective buyers on the sidelines who maybe are hesitating? I think what's interesting when we've looked at it um, upside down and sideways and backwards, as we like to. Availability of credit tends to be the biggest thing that will influence purchase decisions and availability of equity as well. So I don't think there are any issues with the availability of equity, um, but what often gets spooked is lenders' concerns about pricing and equity participants unwilling to make up the difference with equity or mezzanine lenders not being available at that point in time. Um, but the frothiness of pricing today isn't really that different than it had been at other points when we've taken the pulse of the market. What's interesting, though, is the relationship between cap rates. And whenever I speak about stuff, I always say, I'm not going to use the word cap rate, and then I do it anyway. But the relationship between cap rates and treasury yields in a period when the 10-year Treasury keeps falling, the entire Treasury curve keeps falling, and in fact, there's an inversion right now in the Treasury curve. Um, so when you look at it, real estate is a total return asset class, it's an income-producing asset class, and it's an alternative for yield-seeking um, investors. So when the Treasury is as low as it is, you know, the 10 years is as low as it is right now, real estate doesn't look so pricey again, right? So I think you have to realize what influences buyers to buy and what they compare the yield on real estate to. And in a period of falling interest rates like we're having, um, real estate often doesn't look as expensive as it may be. Sure. And it's an important point, although you know, we may think of ourselves as being an environment in which interest rates are rising. That really is largely or, or you know, predominantly a reference to what's happening at the short end of the yield curve. And the, you know, the Fed controls the Fed funds target rate. Uh, but the further out we go on that yield curve, as you mentioned, you know, the Fed exerts something that looks a little bit more like influence rather than control. And we have seen that flattening uh, of the yield curve. Those long-term rates that may be the more relevant numbers for the real estate industry haven't moved you know, to nearly the same degree as what we've seen happen with you know fed policy at the short end now you did mention you know the the debt side of the market all important for real estate uh, what are you seeing are, are the banks still out there active lending any concerns about um, you know that policy makers or regulators might be exerting because of increased exposure to real estate no that you know and that's obviously going to very institution by institution as the regulators come in and do their stress tests and do their you know examinations of lending institutions what's interesting though is you can't underestimate the importance of securitized financing in the marketplace so you know when the treasury curve starts moving around somewhat capriciously for a variety of reasons, and spreads may 
widened too much to blow up uh, a prospective CMBS issuance, that could be something that chills the market. But we haven't really seen that. We see the CMBS market continuing to chug along. And in fact, the lower the Treasury curve goes, um, AAA-rated CMBS paper starts looking attractive again because you get a premium over Treasuries and you can manage the risk. So I think that the um, finance market for real estate still remains there um, as yields fall um, life insurance companies that like to lend against real estate on a long-term basis start liking real estate again because um, it's an opportunity for them to enhance yield as well. Um, so everything seems to in the ecosystem seems to be um, working, and uh, you know I'm I'm as cautiously I hate saying cautiously optimistic, but I'll, two things I said I never said and I already did it, but I'm as cautiously optimistic today as I have been in the past, and that's not my view. That's the view that we collect when we do the research that, that we collect. The, the real question is, and you and I talked about this six months ago, where are we in this expansion? And we're, we're surpassing the magic 120-month uh, mark, which would be the longest economic expansion we've had in U.S. history. And as we break through that point, um, there's probably the right balance of headwinds and tailwinds, but probably net tailwinds for the U.S. economy. The thing that does concern us is whether or not slowdowns in other countries can become a contagion that slips into the United States. Right. So is is that something that you foresee as a real possibility as we look to the latter half of the year? Um, I, I probably not, Sam. And what's interesting is um, when we were talking before we went on air, you mentioned my uh, multiple appearances on Fox Business Network. One of the things I've said on their air a lot is you can't lose sight of the fact that there's $11 trillion worth of sovereign debt that has a negative yield. And the bigger culprits there are Germany, the Bund and Japan. So um, on the one hand, it's the slowing of those economies that's you know, grinding down their central banks to have negative yields on their 10 years, their t- version of the 10-year treasury. Um, but on the other hand, it's the fact that those yields are low the U.S. Um, yield is not, and capital is continuing to flow into the United States, um, which you know, you know, is fuel for the engine of more economic expansion. Um, so, um, it's a delicate balance. But as I said earlier, I think if you look at the U.S. economy on a net headwind tailwind basis, there's probably still more net tailwinds. One of the few headwinds is economic slowing around the globe with our trading partners. But net-net uh, is still, you know, a very, very strong, robust consumer in the United States driving our economy. Right. So, you know, we are in a sort of, a, let's say, a complex geopolitical environment. Uh, any particular concerns about the way in which trade relationships uh, might ultimately, uh, you know, impact the outlook for the economy in the latter half of this year? Sounds like um, you may be expecting that things will play out in a way that uh, is favorable uh, or neutral uh, for the United States, uh, but that at least thus far, it's sort of it's not had a significant and negative impact on us. Yeah, and you know, obviously, the Fed is sort of walking that tightrope too. Um, you know, as it relates to whether or not they want to become a little bit more dovish, because they're worried that uh, trade tensions are slowing um, economic expansion in the United States. I think you have to take um, the Chinese, um, the China-U.S. trade negotiations, and put them in their own category, and then put everything else in a different category. Um, the recent um, dust-up um, with Mexico really didn't have anything to do with trade. It had to do with immigration policy and tariffs, which are generally something that's used in trade negotiations, were used for an alternative purpose. And that situation, for the time being, looks like it resolved itself. But I think it put tariffs on uh, everybody's radar screen as being something that could slow economic growth. Um, the U.S.-China situation, um, from the analysts that I talk to frequently that are a lot closer to that situation than me. The thing you can't overlook is the relative weakness of the Chinese economy, uh, and I say relative, relative to its past, and how their consumer is slowing, um, and their industrial production seems to be slowing, and how they actually probably need us 
way more than they want to acknowledge they need us. So um, I think there's ultimately a solution for the U.S.-China trade negotiations. I think this administration has incentives and motivations to try to do something prior to the general election so that they can claim a win. What I worry about is since the USMCA, which is the U.S., Canada, and Mexico trade agreement, has not been put for a vote before the House, um, I don't know if we'll actually have an inked deal there. Um, and that just sort of highlights the sort of the political um, you know, gridlock that we have and whether or not these trade deals can actually move forward because we can't ratify them. Yeah. If you're just joining us, I'm Sam Chandon, and you're listening to a special edition of the Real Estate Hour here on SiriusXM Business Radio. It's our mid-year real estate outlook. My guest this half hour is Mitch Rochelle, partner at PwC and co-chair of the Urban Land Institute PwC Emerging Trends in Real Estate Report. Mitch, you know, talking about sort of the China-U.S. relationship, um, the trade relationship sort of you know, being sort of a negotiation unto itself and a lot of what we see happening with our other trade partners perhaps being in a different basket. You know, our other guests have commented that while a lot of folks around the globe are not enamored of U.S. politics um, and of uh, our current engagement strategy, let's say, uh, that doesn't seem to be uh, impacting negatively uh, their perceptions of U.S. real estate as um, as a great investment opportunity and the capital still flowing in. Are, are there really t- is there really a divide here? Where on one hand, folks again you know, may not like what they see you know, politically with the United States, but as an investment opportunity, they're certainly not shying away. I think that the if you, if they get past um, the headlines, which may be troubling, and they look at the cash flow model of the underlying asset, um, I think they realize that um, you know just from a fundamentals perspective, we haven't meaningfully added to supply. Uh, in this country, at least since the global financial crisis, uh, demand it remains robust for virtually um, all of the real estate food groups, perhaps with the exception of retail. And um, cash flows continue to grow. Um, and if you're an investor uh, and you're, you know, purely looking at it from a capitalistic perspective, I think you you look past the the, the politics and um, look at the underlying asset. And by the way, Sam, it wouldn't be the first time that foreign investors weren't enamored with an administration in the United <laughs> States or our politics, and they continue to buy, you know, U.S. real estate. So, yeah. um, point um, very well taken. You know, as compared to you know two thousand and eight and two thousand nine, certainly sort of you know coming up on this ten year milestone is a point of reflection for a lot of people. Uh, you know, my sense is that you know on the debt side of it, you know, we don't see. You know, uh, you know, lending that is as uh, aggressive. Um, the are, are we better prepared for for downturn in our industry? Not only because of your relative restraint in in the structure of the deals, but uh, to your point, you know, we have not seen a significant increase in supply. Um, I, listen, I, I you could probably go institution by institution yep. and find the the ones that are more aggressive than others. But net, net, net underwriting standards of commercial real estate, underwriting standards of residential real estate remain um, incredibly strong. One could argue that they think pricing for this loan or that loan looks a little aggressive. But at the end of the day, the discipline around underwriting is way stronger. And it's actually, you mentioned the reflection point. I, I am amazed because it's the first time in, in my three plus decades in this business that real estate folks are looking in the rearview mirror and remembering the past as they make decisions about the future. Um, and I remember just coming out of multiple, you know, crises in real estate or recessions. They move forward as if they had no institutional memory of what happened in the past. Um, I think the global financial crisis was enough of a game changer institutionally that those institutions remember it and it has altered the way in which they do business uh, going forward so that they don't get caught in that game of economic musical chairs again. And I think that that's the, that's the, the big takeaway. Um, you could point to an institution and say they're a little cuckoo and they shouldn't be making the loans that way. But on balance, the industry is exercising more discipline. And I don't know if you've financed or refinanced a home uh, in the, you know, since the global financial crisis, but boy, that is a difficult process. And the single-family mortgage business remains as complicated and difficult to, to get approvals as ever. 
Oh, yeah. You know, refinancing, which I did to take advantage of, you know, historically low interest rates um, you know, with significantly more equity in my home than I had when I bought it, a much more onerous process uh, than uh, than when I was going in the first time to just get the mortgage um, and, and had, uh, you know, no equity to speak of. Um, but such as such as the world. You know, one of the things that uh, we had uh, talked about last time, because it has been such a point of focus for the industry uh, over the last year, and I want to get your sense of sort of what's happened with this. Have we seen momentum or is it just as much sort of the hot discussion topic of the day uh, are, are opportunity zones? Um, I know that, Servio, again, when we were chatting in January, it was you know the the industry's dialogue was really focused uh, on, on this. You know, for the audience, give them a bit of background again. What are opportunity zones, and and where is the industry's thinking on this today? What's interesting is it's yet another uh, occasion where the Internal Revenue Code was used as a tool to promote a, a, a type of investment. Um, interestingly enough, if you go back into history, uh, the Internal Revenue Code was the thing that gave rise to real estate investment trusts. Actually, President Eisenhower signed a relatively innocuous piece of legislation that had buried in it a couple of paragraphs, which gave rise to real estate investment trusts. Um, so opportunity zones are bigger than that in terms of the, the attention that it got um, at the time. But um, it's complicated because um, in order to get the benefits on lower um, um, taxable gains on sales um, of real estate that are in a deemed opportunity zone, you need to hold those assets for prescribed holding periods or at a minimum of prescribed holding period. And uh, so basically you could have tax-free sales uh, or, or seemingly tax-free sales if you held the asset long enough if it was in an opportunity zone. So that was done to create an incentive for people to invest in these areas and keep the money there for a while and not trade the assets. The problem is that's not necessarily the way that real estate investors behave. Real estate investors pour capital in when there's an opportunity to pour capital in. They love tax incentives, but they're going to want to pull it out when the market suggests is the right time to pull it out. So you may have a misalignment in some areas between what makes sense from an economics perspective but, or versus what makes sense from an uh, opportunity zone a tax regulatory perspective. And that's what I think the capital that's lining up um, pretty seriously and significantly for opportunity zone funds, they're trying to figure out how to strike the right balance between the time horizon that makes sense from the tax code perspective versus the time horizon that makes sense from an economic perspective. Um, but um, there is a tremendous amount of interest in it, and I think it's in line with the expectation, which is find those places um, where we need to really build out communities. Um, and it's in line with the whole public-private partnership nature of infrastructure, which is these communities need more housing, they need more real estate stock, they need the infrastructure that supports that, and you use the Opportunity Zone uh, designation as a way to make that happen. Yeah. So relative to the amount of dialogue that we see in the industry around Opportunity Zones, how would you characterize the amount of capital that we've actually seen deployed? Um, I haven't seen as much capital deployed as I've seen funds talking about formation and those um, fund sponsors hitting the road trying to line up the capital for those funds. Uh, and I've seen, you know, big numbers, you know, you know, in the billions range of folks looking to raise funds. Um, so I think the, the capital is there. The sponsors are certainly interested, but haven't seen as much activity on on the ground floor, let's put it that way, in terms of construction. But it's still early. Don't forget the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was signed late in 2017. The regulations are still sort of dripping out of Treasury in terms of how it's all going to work. And trust me, capital's not going to line up until they know exactly what the rules are. So it's still really, really early. I hate baseball metaphors. Third thing I said I hate. Um, but we're in the which first. inning are we in, Mitch? Exactly. But for <laughs> opportunity zones, I think we're in the first. Uh, we're in the first inning. Um, okay. And, and you know, one of the sort of policy goals, practice, maybe <laughs> <laughs> one of the policy goals, you know, d depending on sort of you know, who you're talking to, has certainly been to you know, see uh, capital find its way into communities that have been underserved by capital, you know, in the in the past or up to now. Um, the uh, but you know that when we look at sort of area, what um, 
tracts have been designated as opportunity zones, there's a real range there. I mean, there are deeply underserved communities uh, that sometimes fall within an opportunity zone, and there are some that are, you know, maybe gentrifying, maybe, you know, fairly, uh, you know, good performing or, or, or well-performing neighborhoods. Uh, when we look at the different strategies that are being put out there by the, the funds being raised, uh, you know, is any of it finding its way or is any of it likely to find its way to sort of those most underserved communities? And again, I'm thinking about this from the perspective of, you know, you can create these incentives, but ultimately there are real estate investors uh, you know, who are going to act like real estate investors. You would think that the most underserved communities would have the longest hold periods in order to basically see the profitability that they would expect in their cash flow model, right? So those would be the ones that you would think capital would gravitate towards the most quickly because they want to get that clock running and the 10-year hold may line up perfectly with, you know, up for the economic deal that may line up perfectly with the 10-year hold that's needed from the tax perspective, right? Um, it, although I think at the the end of the day or the beginning of the day, you have entrepreneurs who are making entrepreneurial decisions. And you also said something about gentrifying neighborhoods. There are some neighborhoods in there like, you know, in Brooklyn that are deemed to be opportunity zones. And the fact of the matter is there's no shortage of capital. You don't need incentives to have capital chase, you know, land development opportunities and gentrification plays in Brooklyn. But you do need them in Cleveland and in Detroit and in New Orleans and a lot of other cities um, or Akron, Ohio, that is that are considerably deprived of capital. And that was the underlying intention. So um, I would hope um, that the capital finds the most underserved uh, areas and create those opportunities in those opportunity zones. Um, but I think real estate players are going to behave like real estate players in many respects. Yeah. What do you see as the biggest risks to the outlook for us right now? Uh, in the marketplace, um, I, I, I use the term capricious uh, just because I like SAT words, um, behavior of the treasury curve. That's the thing that frightens me the most, right? And so if you know, Chairman Powell on October 2nd made a comment about where we were at the Fed funds rate and how far away we were from, quote unquote, neutral. And that sent equity markets into a free fall, including the Christmas Eve uh, massacre. Um, as soon as the Fed started changing its tone, and the Fed, by and large, has been pretty good at communicating, uh, look what happened to the equity markets, at least at the beginning of uh, this calendar year. What I worry about is comments from the Fed causing the Treasury curve to jockey around a lot with like 50 basis point swings and having that um, cause real estate capital markets to, you know, just hit the pause button because they don't know where interest rates are going to land and what yield expectations are going to be. To me, in the short term, Sam, that's the biggest threat that I see to real estate. Um, long, long term. I worry about a shrinking workforce, and I worry about slowing of demand for real estate because of the demographics in the United States and because of automation, maybe shrinking demand for real estate. I have a lot of things in my head that justify all of that, um, but I think there's a long-term risk around demand for real estate. Um, and in the short term, I think it's all uh, financial engineering that I, that I worry about. Now, should I read into your comments about the Fed as a suggestion that we should somehow limit their independence? No. All right, good. Just making sure. No, if that was a test, Professor, hopefully I got an A. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Mitch, you get an A every time. There we go. Uh, if speaking you were only of teaching which, when I was in school, I probably would have paid attention in class. But uh, Well, we are actually just about out of time, but I hope that we'll get you back here soon. I, I'd love to. It's always a pleasure, Sam. Thanks so much. That was Mitch Rochelle, a partner at PwC and chairman, uh, co-chairman of the ULI PwC Emerging Trends in Real Estate Report. Uh, Mitch, thanks again for coming on the show. And thanks to all of you, our listeners, for tuning in for this special edition of the Real Estate Hour. If you have a question, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. I'd like to thank my producer, Patty Hall, as well as Dana Cash, who's been standing in for Patty today. I'd also like to thank my sound engineer, Danielle Bruno, and my head of research, Jonathan O'Kane. I'm Sam Chandon, and you've been listening to Business Radio's Mid-Year Real Estate Outlook on Sirius XM 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 